So my name is Ashley, and if we haven't met yet, I'm a pastor here at Crossings. Um, I've been on staff for eight years, uh, so you've probably seen me dashing around trying to help with technology or sitting in on a message, maybe even teaching one or two. Um, unfortunately, you may not see me quite as frequently as you used to. I have transitioned to a newly created central team here at Crossings. Um, it's to help oversee adult education at all of our ministry locations. And so one of the best parts of my new role is that I get to travel to different locations and get to know so many of the great people that make this church the wonderful place that it is. So this is your invitation. You can stop me anytime and say hello. We can catch up, except right now, because that would be weird. I'm about to start teaching. <laughs> Uh, today we're going to wrap up this incredible series on the one and only Jesus. Hasn't it been great? We've taken this remarkable journey together, looking at his life, his actions, and his ministry. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the King. Jesus the Miracle Worker. And Jesus the Healer. Today we're looking at Jesus the Teacher. How many of you have a favorite teacher? Okay, a few of you. For many of us, that question takes us back in time to somebody who changed our world for the better. Maybe they taught you something that you didn't know, or they pushed you past what you thought you were capable of. Maybe they were there for you during a difficult time, or maybe they just saw you and knew your name. Here's one of my favorite teachers. Mrs. Coates. She was my teacher in sixth and seventh grade, and she taught me so much, including, but not limited to, a love of logic puzzles and fresh baked Otis Spunkmeyer cookies. <laughs> she pushed me and she made me better. And after nearly 20 years, I spotted her walking down the halls of crossings one Sunday morning. Mrs. Coates just burst out of me before I could even think of what I was doing. And you know what she said to me? Ashley, it is so good to see you. After all that time, she remembered my name. Jesus never forgets our name. He sees us when we think that no one else can. He wants to teach us and make us new. He's there with us when we think that we cannot give any more just to realize our full potential in him. But Jesus is more than what we think of when we hear the word teacher. He's our rabbi. And in John 3, 2, the scripture says, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. This is just one of 16 passages in our New Testament that refer to Jesus as rabbi. Some scholars argue that our English translations use teacher where rabbi should be used instead. So often our English words just don't grasp the true meaning of the original language. And for us in the Christian church, the word rabbi or rabboni is often lost on us. So I want to spend some time here looking at what it meant 2,000 years ago for you to learn from your rabbi. I think if we start there, 
It will help us see more clearly what Jesus came to teach us. A rabbi is, in fact, a religious scholar and teacher. But there was nothing casual about following your rabbi. Rabboni means master in Hebrew. I don't think I'm going to be calling Mrs. Coates my master anytime soon. For boys that showed scholarly promise, they left their families behind in order to learn from their rabbi full time. Their whole lives were dedicated to learning, to learning what the rabbi could teach them. His followers were considered servants of the rabbi. I know when we hear the word servant, we often jump to a more negative connotation, almost like slave. But being a servant just meant someone who is engaged in the act of serving. Serving is simply the act of helping or doing work for someone else. Serving was the first stage of discipleship. You served your rabbi as you learned how to follow the word of God, just as he did. So take a moment to think of who and where you serve in your own life. Maybe you serve your spouse or your children. Maybe you serve the church or another worthy nonprofit organization. All of those are good things. But can I ask you why you serve those things? Is it because you love them? It's really easy in our own strength and abilities to serve the things that we love. So let me ask you, are you serving Jesus? Not just following him, but serving him. Because serving him is the first act of discipleship. Choosing to serve Jesus over everything else that you love will change the way that you serve. Serving God means serving what he loves, not just what we love. And guess what? You're still going to serve your spouse and your children. But because you're doing it out of service to the Lord, you'll do it better because it will be out of his abundance and not yours. You'll likely still serve the church or that nonprofit that you're passionate about. But you'll be serving the Lord, not just building, not just a building or a mission statement. You might even find yourself serving something or someone that you don't particularly like or understand simply because God loves them and he asked you to. Dare I say you might serve in kids ministry? <laughs> that one gets me. Whew. Maybe you'll serve at a prison. Maybe you'll befriend a homeless person. Maybe you'll open your home to foster care. When you love and serve the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you love what he loves, and you begin to see the world the way that he sees it. The object of Jewish discipleship was to follow, emulate, duplicate, and replicate your rabbi, but all while serving him first. Even today, Orthodox Jewish people so closely emulate their rabbis that others can identify which rabbi they serve just by looking at them. Some rabbis wore a certain robe and others a particular style of hat. Some even wore their hair in a distinctive way. And generations later, their followers are wearing the same things just to show loyalty to their rabbi. When someone looks at you, do they know that you follow Jesus? Are you so closely serving him that others know just by watching you and what you do? 
As the saying goes, we should be covered in the dust of our rabbi. Are you following him closely enough that the dust that he kicks up from his shoes settles on your clothing? Jesus was the ultimate rabbi. And we know from our previous lessons in this series that he gave healing, deliverance, and signs and wonders to draw people to his teaching. And it's from his teaching that we learn how to live. We learn from his teaching the very essence of obedience to God and his commandments. So what did Jesus come to teach? In Matthew 4, 17, it says, from the time that Jesus began to preach, he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus started his ministry with these words and he used them again and again throughout his time on earth. What struck me in reading these passages and others like it was that it sounds to me like repentance is part of what we're supposed to be doing. But are we a culture that's good at repentance? How often do we talk about it or practice it? Do we even know what it really means? Okay, I can already feel the discomfort in the room ratcheting up a few notches as we talk about repentance. We don't use this word enough in our churches today. And so this emphasis on repentance feels uncomfortable to us. It's counterintuitive to what we're used to, even in the church. Many of us, unfortunately, have experiences of people abusing or twisting the idea of repentance. So we have to work through this discomfort together to see what's truly there. We live in a self-focused, therapeutic culture that too often seeps into our worldview. What the world tells us is good is helping you feel better about you. You don't need to change. You don't need to be transformed. You actually need to learn to give healthy expression to your needs. Your truth is king. But don't we know better? Jesus is our king, not us. The Bible tells us that we absolutely must change and we must be transformed. And relying on ourselves will only lead us on a path to destruction. So we can't miss this call to repentance. It's what we need to do to prepare for the coming of the king. And that has been the message of the church for generations. So let's start with the basics together. What is repentance? The word repentance comes from the Greek word metanoia, which means a change of mind. However, the English gives us a really unique picture of what repentance is. Re means backward from, and pent comes from the root word penal, which means penalty or punishment. Repentance is not just a change of mind. It's a change of direction from what is not pure. Many of us are familiar with this act of repentance that's displayed at our own conversion, the turning around of our entire lives, going back home to where we originally belong, both in fellowship and submission to God. Repentance is essentially a call to return to go back home. So could I challenge you that repentance is not just a one-time turning of our entire lives to follow the God of the universe, but a continual act of submission to stay on the narrow path that God has set before us. 
If we read further into Matthew, Jesus is teaching the famous Sermon on the Mount. And if you did your homework, you're familiar with Jesus's frequent use of parables. A parable is simply a comparison of two things, throwing them alongside one another as a metaphor to help us understand a wider truth within the context of the story that Jesus is telling. Jesus wanted us to understand the kingdom of God. And so he uses these everyday items to teach his followers what the kingdom was like. Many of them had it all wrong. And by making these comparisons, he was challenging them to change their mind, to go in a new direction, to repent. The kingdom is now. And Jesus graciously painted this vivid picture to help us get a glimpse of what is just beyond our understanding. In Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. What is this idea of a narrow gate? Ancient cities were fortified by walls, and you could only enter by way of the gate. Some cities had really wide gates, and others had really narrow ones. Some had single gates, and others had multiple gates that started wide and became increasingly more narrow. And when Jesus spoke these words, people would have immediately understood this visual. Here's some pictures that I took just over a week ago while I was in Israel to give you a little perspective. Yes, I had to throw that in there. I was in Israel just one week ago. So once in a lifetime trip. So if you can go make it happen, come talk to me about it afterwards. It was fabulous. These are remnants of a gate from Tel Dan, left over from long before the time of Christ. Think like 1,500 years before the time of Jesus. The opening in the first picture has been filled to keep the integrity of the gate intact, but I drew the outline for you so you would know where the opening would have been. In the second picture, you can see the full replica of what the gate would have looked like. And then in the next picture, you would see how large the city was in comparison to the gate. So being there in person and seeing that the remnants of that gate, only about two people could fit through that gate at a time. This was a narrow gate. Wide gates could have let throngs of people in at once. They could have let in horses and carts and other animals too. Cities with wide gates were really easy to get into, but they were nearly impossible to defend. Some were the width of the road. You could walk right by without ever noticing that you'd entered into a gate. And cities with narrow gates were obviously more difficult to get into. And sometimes they had turns that made it even harder to navigate. One had to be very intentional and take their time to enter a narrow gate with purpose. Might that metaphorical narrow gate that Jesus calls us to be repentance? And if it is, we must do all we can to find it. Because it is so small, the act of repentance will always feel difficult to us in our flesh. It's a really good thing God did not call us to a life of easy. 
We are really quick to rationalize our own behavior, myself included, but we can be nothing but honest before God. He knows us to the depths of our soul. Repentance is a coming to terms with our own sinfulness. It's remorse for having offended our God and pure gratitude for the mercy that he gives us in place of his justice. It's a rejection of our own pride and our own self in order to go back home. Repentance is an act of love that makes us whole again. It's a habitual practice of turning our eyes back to the Lord. None of that is easy. But if we look at the end result, a return to fellowship with the Lord, instead of all that difficult stuff at the beginning, I think we might find a new joy in repentance. It's not so much what you turn from, but it's who you turn to. So how do we practice repentance in our lives? Do you remember that idea of serving your rabbi? It being the very first step to discipleship? How about you simply ask the Holy Spirit if you're serving Jesus or if you're serving yourself? In the big things and in the mundane. In your work, in your home, in the quiet places in your soul. Is what you're doing serving Jesus? Or is it serving you? The Spirit will meet you there. The Spirit will meet you in your honesty. And He will sweetly show you the areas of your life that He wants to help you sanctify. Jesus, the teacher, knows your name. He sees us when we think that no one else does. And He wants to teach us and make us new. He knows our full potential. And He will dwell with us to make it known. So let us start with a posture of repentance. <coughs> Let's pray together, guys. Jesus, we are grateful for the mercy and grace that you extend to us in your unfailing love for us. And though we so often fall short of your standard, you continue to love us and to invite us in. Thank you for coming to earth to teach mankind about yourself and about your kingdom. You are coming back, and I pray we continue to repent in preparation of your coming. May those around us know we love you and that we serve you by the dust on our clothes. And may we reflect to the world the light that you are to all of us. In your precious name we pray, amen.